The Start On Demand. On demand. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Loren, uh, I understand you lost yourself some cash to one of your one of your boys over the hockey game. Never bat with an eight-year-old. Never <laughs> bat with an eight-year-old. I feel like I'm going to hear about this for days to come. Oh, as you know, I have a Leafs fan in the family. So, you know, I made a bet. I loved the way the Jets played in that first game. I'm not have fan of the Leafs, have never been a fan of the Leafs, yes, so I've got a kid, I don't know where I went wrong there, but he loves them, I made a $10 bet last night, and I lost, and quite frankly, I'm not mad about the money, I'm mad that I wasted my time on that game, only because <laughs> it was so hard to see, particularly that second period, like they were just so out of gas, I remember there was this one shot, I'm trying to think about how many minutes in, they panned along the bench, nobody's looking at each other, no one's talking to each other, they're all just staring out on the ice, wondering where is the energy I need to make this right? And they never found it, in my opinion, Greg. They, they, there were some chances, but it just was not the same kind of game. Yeah, after a fairly even first period, in fact, I would say the Jets were the better team for the better part of the first period. 22-6, to six, the Leafs outshot the Jets in that second period. Some high-quality chances, I think, including nine on the power play and some high-quality chances. The third period, the Jets, I thought, were at least as good, if not a little bit better than the Leafs, but uh, simply not good enough. Missing Patrick Laine, missing Dylan DeMello, missing Tucker Pullman. Uh, The Jets' second game of the season, the Leafs' fourth game of the season. I don't know if that plays into it or not. I think we'll see... Uh, a little bit more of what the Jets are made of against Ottawa tonight. If they go down on Ottawa tonight and fall to one and two, that will not be a good sign. But uh, it's nice to get right back on the bike or on the bus, get back on the ice tonight and not dwell too much on what's a disappointing first loss of the season. Can I just say this, Brett? I did not miss. I didn't realize how fortunate I had been in this home to not have the distractions of hockey. And, and so kids are getting ready for bed some point in the third and I text my husband, are you alive out there? And he comes in. He's like, sorry, this is game's on. And, it's, and I was like, oh, I did not miss this. Not going to lie. Didn't miss this. Solo parenting in the third period. Is that basically what it came down to? And let me warn you about this, Loren. I made a, a bet with my grandfather on a Winnipeg Jets Montreal Canadiens game back in 1979. I won the five bucks. I never, ever let him forget it. So here we are 40-plus years later, and I I can tell you all the circumstances of that game uh, that I won the $5, the only bet I ever made with my uh, dearly departed G-Paw. I'm going to double down, double down on the next game. (laughs) Oh, double double or nothing's a sucker's bet. So if your boy's listening this morning, don't do it. (laughs) Never do double or nothing. Take your money and run. So the Jets in Ottawa tonight at 6 o'clock, pregame at 4 o'clock right here on 680 CJOB. Lots of Jets stuff this morning, of course. We've got Hextall and Hockey at 6.55. The sounds of the game at 7.55. And at 8.10, we have the keys to the game for tonight. Also, it's Tuesday, which means breakfast with the Bombers at 7.37. And we've got Coach Mike O'Shea. So we're excited to talk to the coach today. But we want to put the ice aside, put the gridiron aside for just a moment and look to the links. The problem with conquering the world is that the world is going to want its revenge. He got clean, he got healthy, and he 
crawls out of that hole. This is the comeback of all comebacks. Do not underestimate Tiger Woods. Tiger, two-part HBO documentary, which wrapped up this past Sunday on Crave. Uh, so for a lot of people, if you're on Shaw, you probably didn't watch this on Sunday night. Uh, I know I certainly didn't because the Shaw feed for Crave is 10 p.m. I think if you're on MTS, it's 8 o'clock, which has already always grinded my gears. But uh, I thought it was a magnificent two-part film documentary. Greg, what did you think? I loved it. Uh, I didn't love all the story. Obviously, a lot of the story is super disturbing. It's uh, bothersome to know that someone that so many people, millions of people looked up to was was living this double life. And, you know, I came up with two words after the first episode that I conveyed to you that came to mind immediately, Brett, and that was, well, actually two names, Michael Jackson. It felt as though... Tiger Woods and Michael Jackson, their childhood were very, very similar in the fact that really they didn't have one. Yeah, Earl Woods from the point when Tiger was a toddler. He uh, spent the rest of Tiger's life essentially forging the ultimate golf weapon. There was a point where Tiger wanted to play other sports in schools. Dad said, no, you got to focus on golf. And uh, he, I mean, he succeeded. He turned Tiger into the ultimate golfing weapon, but at what cost? to tiger and uh i loved the way the first part of the documentary ended as it it ended sort of not on a cliffhanger but it was very clear that in the next part we're gonna learn about his womanizing and his philandering and what i found so sad about it is i think the big one was rachel you could tell um as the way that she was shamed uh, by by the pop like the paparazzi were just merciless with yeah, her it's her fault yeah, she's the home wrecker. That it's her yeah. fault. That you know, yeah. t- he didn't make any choices there, right? Yeah, Had to yell her. And then, like, the, and then they show a clip from the View, Whoopi Goldberg, and the entire panel mocking her, making fun of her. I just thought, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Like, this is just brutal. There, so her life, you know. I don't want to say her life was ruined, but it's certainly like she said she's had a hard time finding work because that stigma has followed her around. So uh, it it did not hold any pull any punches, I think, in painting what I thought was a complete portrait of Tiger. It sort of spoke of his rise, his fall, and it briefly touched on his comeback, which I know, Greg, uh, made you a bit emotional. It did just because I have a soft spot in my heart for Tiger Woods and what he's been able to do on the golf course. I sort of lived it via television it was right in my wheelhouse in terms of my sports loving days and it just uh, it's just so hard to see the fact that he went through that did what he did to people that he cared about and loved uh i just hope i just hope uh, beyond hope that he has a ends up having a quality relationship with his kids because well this is this is the takeaway too. I mean, I, I haven't seen it. I think I will. I said to you guys, I struggle with this. The whole, you know, I'm not a fan of his personal <laughs> decisions, and so that's been the, the issue for so many fans, right? You want to love him for how what he's been able to do on on the course, but then off that, you have all these other questions. But I think you know, you both sound like you learned something from it, and it gave you a different perspective on things. And Brett, with your notion of who was the homewrecker there, and Greg just hoping that the family can move on from that. I mean, I think that. That if, if you can walk away from a documentary like that having learned something, then that's good. Yeah, I think it's given me a bit more of an appreciation of, at the very least, of what 
of what the, the difficulties that he had in his life, and I'm not saying that justifies the bad decisions he's made. Other people have hard lives, and they don't turn out to be you know, to go out and cheat on their their wife and 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 hurt all of their fans or whatever. But uh, still, you know, it just showed it showed that he's just a human being. Yeah, it's not an excuse. It's the reasons behind what happened. And then maybe you can craft a different opinion. And at the very end of the day, he is only a human being, even though he was raised and programmed to be something else altogether, in my estimation. A tweet from a software manager in Saskatoon has gone viral after he said he would not accept an employee's request to move to 80% time at 80% pay. Mm, But he didn't say no because he was mad about the request. He was upset that she had to think about making that sacrifice in the first place. As Global's Catherine Ward explains, his response has since renewed the conversation about the struggles women in the workforce have been dealing with because of COVID-19. And they decided that as a family, that it would probably be best if she moved to 80% time. And I told her no. It was a rational request from a member of his team. She was hoping to take a morning off or maybe a full day off at the beginning of the week to get the kids oriented and then a couple of hours at the end of the week to wrap up whatever lessons they were doing. But one Aaron Janae would only accept as a last resort. It wasn't really a no to 80% time. It was a, a, a no to 80% pay. Juggling work, family and everything else without outside help is the impossible hand the pandemic has dealt families. Janae said he felt it was important to explore other ways the company could support his employees while maintaining her full salary and they found a solution that she would block time off for her kids and her family just as if she were booking an appointment for one of our customers olivia riddell heads up an international music program most of the teachers are women she hears about these struggles all the time women have been giving up their careers to ensure that there is some level of stability within their family A recent study looking at how the pandemic has affected women in the workforce found mothers were more than twice as likely as fathers to worry that their performance is being judged negatively because of caregiving responsibilities. 76% of mothers with children under age 10 say childcare is one of their top three challenges during COVID-19, compared to 54% of fathers. Vanessa Glasser works as a litigator. She says doing her work virtually has cut down on wasted time and made it possible to be with her family more. It's nice to know that we have the option to attend court online and do client conferences online and also, um, you know, things that would typically eat up a lot of time in a uh, boardroom. Many say they hope this conversation continues even after the virus is gone. When we lose women as role models in jobs that are high quality, high paying and highly visible, we lose a generation of people who can take those jobs. Managers need to um, spend some time acknowledging and actually actively listening to what their employees need. And sometimes their employees don't need money, they need time. Catherine Ward, Global News. Yeah, money, not time, or time, not money. That's the equation that many people are trying to balance. And so when we talk about the disproportionate impacts of COVID on women, I know numbers out of the states show the unemployment rates are four times higher 
for women than men. And that might be because, you know, sectors like food preparation or personal care, hair salons, they include more women. But we've seen so many studies that have shown women have taken on more of the extra work that's come with the pandemic, maybe schoolwork because the school's closed or childcare because your daycares reduced their hours. And yes, I know every job is different. But gender aside, if you went to your boss this morning and said, I need to cut back my hours or I need to find a way to do this better and not have so many meetings or change things around, what would their response be? Because if we're losing women in these really important jobs, that's an issue for all of us and we need to find a better balance. In the United States last month or in December, 140,000 jobs were lost in that country. It's the first time in eight months the economy saw a dip in job growth. It's estimated that women accounted for 156,000 of the 140,000 net jobs lost. What? Yes. 156,000 of the 140,000? Net. Yeah, so there were 156 lost lost jobs by women. Okay. 16,000 gained by men, so 140,000 net loss. All of them essentially women that have lost their jobs in the United States. And they lost them because of what's going on with the economy or some of them also having to choose to leave those jobs? A combination of both things. There's a lot of factors at play, but that's where you end up. If you ever went to the University of Manitoba and had classes in the old tier building, it's a picture of the bathrooms in the tunnel near the the tier building. It says this. It's from at Shan Furness. If you ever use the tunnel bathroom in tier building, don't worry about what's in the vaccine. (laughs) And I can remember this bathroom being disgusting 30 years ago, and it hasn't changed much at all. So it just had me wondering. Uh, There have to be places in our collective consciousness where you know you were supposed to go to the washroom you walked in you went uh no i'm not doing that or perhaps a hotel room and i have one very specifically in mind where you were supposed to lay your head at night and you thought twice about it okay so you can text us 204-780-6868 we realize the the bathroom subject could be a little tricky because we don't want to get too gross but uh, if you have a way to tell the story in a delicate fashion share it at 204-780-6868 let's go around the horn we got cameron poitras jeff braun jeff forte cameron poitras let's uh, start with you sir uh well i've this one was particularly bad i i was i just got into london and it was my first night in europe and, you know, when you're on a first night in vacation, uh, I, I, met, I met these two guys in the bar at the hostel. And anyways, we had, a, we had a good time. So I was dressed in lots of layers. It was snowing in London. I was soaking wet. And because I had just one bag, I was like wearing lots of extra layers so I could carry extra clothes. Well, when you have a, a right uh, drunk, I guess, as you say that, it, it became an emergency. I was down in the tube and I had to use the bathroom. It was just, uh, it was, it was a, it was a must. And uh, I, it was a pay. I had to pay like a pound to get in. And it was the worst bathroom I've ever seen in my entire life. But I had to accept it. I had to just, I had to just get in there. I, I had no other choice. So I had to like take all my layers off. I had like two jackets, like a pair of pants, <laughs> long johns, and it was. I had to hover. I was hovering over the toilet because I would not touch it. Uh, uh, yeah, it was shockingly bad. Like as bad as you think it was, it was like twice as it was twice as worse. 
It was it was a nightmare. It was a night. It was it was horrible. So isn't but, it Train Spotting that talks about the yeah. worst bathroom in Great Britain? Yeah, I, I must have had it. I must have found it. It was in the tube near the Parliament Building. It, oh God! It was and no one else was in there. Surprising, surprise, surprise. <laughs> I was the only idiot that was in was in that bathroom. Sometimes nature's call just must be answered. <laughs> Jeff Braun, what about you? Uh, for me, uh, as a child, I was absolutely traumatized by the trough in the bathroom at the old Winnipeg arena. Because when you're a kid and you're short, you have to use the low end of that thing, which is where the drain is, which is where the river of everything going in comes towards you. And the the, the things I saw floating in there that I shouldn't have seen floating in there, <laughs> it just, I will never forget. And I, I, I it instilled a, a Nasty case of bashful bladder syndrome in me that I've yet to shake. So I go to the bathroom before I leave my house is the short is the answer to that. I hated those troughs. I just despised them. And uh, the toad on Osborne had a trough as well uh, before they've moved. Hopefully they didn't make that a part of their new location. Jeff Forte, what about you? I've actually had to clean a public bathroom. I don't know if anyone's done that. Let me tell you, people are pigs. Like I don't I don't get how you miss that that hardcore. Like it's just <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I I was working at this retail, this big retail store, and uh remember the supervisor comes in because I had to clean the bathroom. She comes in, she goes, You're not done yet? And there I am. I'm going, Ugh, uh. <laughs> I just like, I'm gagging, I'm gagging. She's going, What, you never cleaned a toilet before? And I'm going, Not a public one. Like the toilets I clean are at home. I know who's used them. Yeah. <laughs> People are pigs at home. Yeah. Oh, it's it was terrible. <laughs> And well, Lorena, no, that's uh, something you've you've lamented before, commented before about. Uh, you know, we we seem to be able to hit every target but the uh, but the bowl. Well, I don't want to say that my washroom might be the worst washroom I've ever been in, but there are days that I wonder. Yes, you've got a direct arrow into. I don't understand what's going. To, I'm, I'm, I'm missing the words, but it's, like a, it's, a, it's a sure shot. It's a sure shot, and you're missing it. And I don't understand what that is about. Okay. And, we and haven't figured out how to work it yet. That's, that's really? just what it is. Because yep. I feel like you spend a lot of time in and around there, so I'm just... <laughs> Maybe, you know what? I think I'll just leave it at that. Why don't we just leave it there? But I, I also I want to add one more thing. Is it me or is it some washrooms you go into, the cleaners, like the, the what they're using to clean the washroom actually smells. I'm trying to remember the name of the one that I think smells like urine. And you will walk in after the cleaning person has just been in there and you're like, how does it still stink like the trough in here when you were just in here? And I'm wondering if it it was just all just getting mixed together with the bleach. Greg, we got 60 seconds. What was your story? Uh, went to Minneapolis without a hotel reservation. The LPGA was in town along with three Minnesota Twins games. We ended up at the Bates Motel in Minneapolis. There was bulletproof glass between us and the clerk. There was a giant drain in the middle of the bathroom. No shower curtain. And we all slept on top of the comforter or the bedspread, there was no way we were crawling inside. Fifty-six bucks for no sleep whatsoever. <laughs> back in 1991, I will never forget it. And Loren, you mentioned the smell. I-, I will never ever forget the smell of that hotel room. Thank you. Never again. 
204-780-6868. Tell us a story of either the worst bathroom you've ever encountered or the worst hotel room you've ever encountered. Or maybe you got a double whammy where it was the worst hotel room, which also had the worst bathroom. 204-780-6868 for your chance to win a Santa Lucia $20 gift card. And now, Jeff Forte. All right, the first week of the NHL season is about to be complete, and already panic buttons are being pressed by certain teams. Hextall on Hockey explains why. In any 82-game regular season NHL schedule, a 0-2 and start would not be called for concern. But with only 56 games on the schedule this season, a team's first 20 games could eliminate a team from the playoffs. Let's say to make the postseason this year, a team will need to earn around 63 points, or the equivalent of a record that stands seven games above the 500 mark. If a team records five wins and 15 losses in its first 20 games to be 10 games below 500, that means a team would have to end the 56-game regular season 17 games above 500 in order to make the playoffs. To accomplish that, the team must win more than 50% of its remaining schedule after those 20 games, an even more difficult task considering each game is a divisional matchup. Which means injuries, even those that are day-to-day, such as Patrick Liney's upper body injury, can be detrimental to any team, in this case, the Winnipeg Jets. With each game tied to playoff implications, even a small injury, one that most players would normally skate through in a regular season, must be taken seriously. The last thing a team needs is a minor injury nagging a player throughout the season and costing a team multiple man games lost. For example, if Liney's current injury sidelines him for one week, the top six winger won't won't miss two to three games like most regular seasons, Line would be absent from five games, a possible 10 points, which doubles in the all-divisional four-point swing schedule, which means more than any season before. Good health is the best wealth. Tuesdays and Thursdays, Hextall and Hockey, you'll hear it multiple times throughout the day. Once again, pregame at 4 o'clock, puck drop in Ottawa at 6. On your voice of the Jets, 680 CJOB. Just want to read this quick text from Tim at 204-780-6868 who had himself a washroom adventure. He says, rushed into a small town bathroom in a bit of a panic. Toilet wasn't bolted to the floor. Both the toilet and I fell sideways, dumping the bowl water all over the floor and breaking the water supply line. Oh, no. Sorry, Tim. I shouldn't have laughed. No, that's funny. That's funny. (laughs) <laughs> he wouldn't be sharing the story if he couldn't laugh about it now. So, Tim, thank you. 204-780-6868. Worst bathroom or worst hotel room for your chance to win Santa Lucia Pizza gift card. Hey, Greg, who are we talking to at 737? Head coach of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Mike O'Shea, will join us. We'll catch up with Coach, find out how he's spending this extended off season and find out what it takes to build a group of players and create a, a team where everybody, it seems, wants to come back no matter what. So we'll catch up with the coach in about 32 minutes from now. And we have sounds of the game, Winnipeg Jets, last night. They lost, but we've got the sounds of the game coming up at 7.55. Gym owners are speaking out this morning, frustrated over what they're saying is a double standard that's allowing some city employees to continue exercising at their workplace gyms despite public health orders that have forced all other gyms to close. So we're not talking about recreation facilities that would normally be open to the public, to you and I to use with the pools and the gyms and all the rest. We're talking about city of Winnipeg buildings that also have gyms inside for their employees. So as an example, 
There might be gyms located within WFPS or WPS buildings. When Global News asked the city for more detail, the city said there are several city workplaces that have fitness facilities used exclusively by city staff. And in that email added that not all of those gyms are located within police or WFPS stations. So we're not just talking from the sounds of it about first responders here. We are working to get more detail. The city has promised to provide more detail. But in the meantime, Greg... Frustration might not even be the word for it. Paul Taylor is the owner, head trainer at Brick House Gym, and he joins us now. Paul, I can only imagine how frustrated you must have been to learn about this. I, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty taken aback when I when I heard this potential news. So, pretty, uh, pretty mind blown. But I mean, at this point, nothing surprises me. So, so I've heard a lot of people suggest that. You know, some people say gyms should be closed. How can you possibly keep that clean? You know, I'm, I, I touch a piece of equipment. Someone else is touching a piece of equipment. But others have said you can still operate a gym safely. How would you do that in this environment? So, I mean, we already had an answer to that, uh, that scenario. Um, all of our members prior to this most recent lockdown, uh, prior to the first lockdown and in between both lockdowns, we were giving every member of the gym a spray bottle of sanitizer that they would take around with them through the gym. They would sanitize their equipment before and after using it as a policy, and our members were doing a great job of that. On top of that, whenever the gym was open, we had staff on that were cleaning all the major contact points every hour on the hour, um, you know, and then some just the, the cleaning was, you know, constant so i don't know that there was anywhere cleaner to go than than a gym i I know that they don't have the same kind of cleaning protocols at any of the grocery stores or anything of that variety um because when you walk into the place and you grab your cart um that's really all they they give you they sanitize it when you walk in but then they don't even give you sanitizer when you leave as if to say that you're not going to pick up any germs while you're in there so i mean with the with the gym we were really 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 wanting to fight for our right to exist as a business and as a, uh, you know, as a, as a tool for the community to use to stay physically and mentally healthy. And, you know, so we haven't had that for about three months now and about three months earlier. So a lot of people are really hurting from it. Yeah, I know there's been loss uh, financially, thousands of dollars per month for, for many gyms. Oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. grocery store, I know you mentioned the grocery stores. You know, I think it's dependent on which grocery store you do go to as, as to what that experience might be like. But the gym experience right now doesn't exist for most Manitobans uh, and, until we learned about what's going on at these city facilities. And I think there would be some people that would say, Paul, I don't know if I have an issue with first responders working out. It sounds like we're not just talking about gyms in fire paramedic police buildings what what's your answer to that if someone says well what's the big deal what would you say well i mean first off if if we're operating under the the belief that that training in a gym at this time is inherently a a massive risk to one's health and safety then why would you uh you know let your first responders or any of your city employees be exposed to such an unsafe risk uh if the belief is that everyone else is, is, you know, in too much danger to go to a gym. So that, that's the first question that comes to mind. Well, why is it safe for them and not safe for the rest of us? Uh, the only other thing I can see it as is a double standard, you know, some form of preferential treatment. If you're a city employee, they value you differently than, than the average citizen. And I, I think the whole thing is just, you know, it's a bit of hypocrisy. Um, do as I say, not as I do. 
Well, and I think that when it comes right down to it, Paul, I think for most of us, that's all we ask for is accountability, some reason behind your decision. And when you have it and when you have a decision, uh, let's let's present it and let's enforce it equitably across the board. Yeah, definitely. Some communication would be really nice. I mean, right. Even right now, I have so many people contacting me saying, you know, when are you opening? When are you opening? When are you opening? Well, I have no clue. And the reality is the last time we were allowed to reopen after our three or close to three month lockdown, I found out when everyone found out and there was probably about a two day or three day gap between when I was supposed to rally all my troops and somehow, you know, turn a business right back on at the snap of a finger. Um, And I feel like that's the exact same thing that's coming down the pipe here. So a little bit of communication with people would be great. I mean, as I mean, Right now, while we sit in limbo waiting, um, like you said, it's costing thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, Manitoba Hydro doesn't stop billing us. Um, I mean, there's a lot of problems here. So, In the event that the restrictions are loosened and gyms are allowed to reopen, will you be ready? Uh, I'll make it happen. You know, um, every all of my employees are currently laid off, but they all really love the gym and they appreciate the importance of it for themselves and others. So I think I'll be able to get people back together uh, in a timely fashion, but it's, you know, we keep moving the goalposts. So it, it'll be a real, it'll be a real storm to try to make it happen, but I'll definitely make it happen. I can, I can give you that promise. Paul Taylor, owner and head trainer for Brick House Gym, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Paul, thanks for the time. Yeah, my pleasure. I got a hotel room story. We were asking you for your bathroom, worst bathroom stories or worst hotel room stories. And once upon a time, I went to visit my family in Essex, Ontario. My cousin Jim was getting married. This was back in like 1998 or 1999. So I went out there with my girlfriend at the time and my uh, family reserved us uh, a motel room in Essex. So obviously we didn't go in expecting, you know, five-star accommodations. It, It was a motel and we got there pretty late. I think we got there after one o'clock. So we actually had to wake up the person in the office. And uh, so we got settled in and relaxed for a little bit. And just as we turn out the lights, we hear a cricket. And we say, was that in the room? Like, you know, we were the wind. I think we had the window open. So it could have been coming from outside. And then it goes again. Like, yep, that's that's in the hotel room. Oh, boy. So I had to spend the next 10 minutes trying to suss out this cricket. And I <clears throat> I had never seen a cricket at that point. I'd only ever heard them. Did so you find it? Eventually I found it when it jumped out at me and scared the <laughs> crap out of me because I'd never seen one. I know it's just a cricket. Where did you find it? I can't remember. I think I opened uh, the cart, pulled the curtain away, and it finally came out. It was behind uh, like a baseboard or something. Uh, so I was able to trap it. I, I didn't kill it. I trapped it in the glass and set it free. But, uh, <laughs> so not necessarily the worst, but I can honestly say that's the one time I've had uh, wildlife in my well, hotel room. I don't want to be a one-upper, but I should tell you later about the time there was a scorpion. That's a definite room. A scorpion? <laughs> Continue, McNabb. Actually, it was my birthday, and we were staying on the Red Sea in Israel, and my husband had, um, and I got a hotel room, and I fell asleep, and I wake up in the morning, 
and there's all these towels shoved under the door, like in the bathroom and the door, the, uh, on the window. And I'm like, what went on right here? And he's like, well, I haven't slept since about two in the morning because you hear this coming down the hall. And Elsie's like, I think there's something in the room. And I'm like, like snoring next to him. And then all of a sudden, apparently, he feels, feels it on his leg Great. and then crawling up his chest and then just reaches down and grabs it, chucks it at the wall, slams on the light and sees right out the door. <laughs> A scorpion. And I slept through the whole thing. That's the best part. <laughs> With temperatures plummeting. It's cold out there. Groups that work with Manitoba's homeless community are working to find ways to keep to help keep as many people as warm as possible this winter. Yeah, and, you know, we do homeless counts every year with different homeless senses, and there's between hundreds, if not thousands, of people who don't have a dedicated place to lay their head each night in Manitoba. And then, of course, there's many more who are hurt, many more who go to bed hungry. And that's why Habitat for Humanity is once again hosting its coldest night of the year event, except like many fundraisers this past year, this one is going to be done a little differently. And we're pleased now to be joined by Michelle Pereira with Habitat for Humanity. Been a while, Michelle. Good morning. Hi, Lorette. Hey, everybody. How are you? We're well. Uh, it's good timing because, as Brett mentioned, and, and I've been cringing when Greg reads the forecast, it's cold out there. So tell us a little bit about how this event would normally run if we weren't uh, dealing with COVID. Yeah, so this is the first time Habitat for Humanity Manitoba is participating in Coldest Night of the Year. It is a national uh, organization run by the Blue Sea Foundation. Um, there's 149 communities across the country that on February 20th will all be getting together virtually, and we will be walking uh, to kind of change the lives of, of those who need a little help. Um, how does this event normally run? Because I, I, I think I know, and I think a lot of our listeners know, but yeah. uh, what does it normally look like, Michelle? Yeah, so there's usually a, a designated route. Uh, you sign up, you create a team, you raise money, and then you all walk together. But obviously, that's not going to be what 2021 looks like. So we are virtually doing this. You pick the route that you want to walk. You can ride your bike. You can go skiing. You can go snowshoeing. You can take your dog to the dog park. Whatever it is that you want to do, you just be active on February 20th. We're recommending between two to five kilometers is kind of a distance that you might want to um, achieve. Uh, but you can do it with whoever you want and, and, and as safely as possible. And so that's what we're, we're saying. So it does look different. I know that uh, you, typically it's a whole group of people get together, but we know that's not going to happen this year. What are you hearing about the need this year? Anything different? You know, I think uh, the need for affordable housing when it comes to Habitat's mission is, is going to be at an all-time high. You know, lots of people, as we know, are affected by COVID, by losing their jobs. And uh, so security of a warm home is going to be at an all-time high. And so we are doing everything we can to raise as much money as we can to be able to build as many homes as possible. So it's easy to participate in this night, which takes place February 20th. You can yeah. go to cnoy.org. That's the right, am I throwing out the right address there, Michelle, for signing yeah, up and starting go, the team? 100%. You can go there or you can even visit our website, habitat.mb.ca. We have a link that goes directly to how you register to our page. And, and really, it's simple. You register yourself. 
you we encourage you to get a team together so you can raise more money. Uh, you pick it could be your business so your coworkers that you haven't seen forever. Get everybody together. You can uh, create some social channels that you want to do, and then it's there's no registration fee. You don't have to fundraise, but if you raise one hundred fifty dollars, you will get a very cool tube. And I do know that uh, Richard Cluche has a tube, and so does. Um, uh, yeah, he has a toque. So he's going to post some pictures and you'll be able to see the toque that you get. So if you raise $150, you get that. You know, uh, Greg, you could go out with your kids. I know you have twins. They're probably super busy. So go out with them. If they raise $75 each, they will also get a toque. Or you could just yeah. cut a check for them. Well, if Kluche has a toque, I got to make sure I got a toque. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a guarantee. Let's be clear, Brett, Brett. I know I... that you're Brett. I know you're walking like crazy. You there told you us yesterday that you're out there walking. <laughs> so like, go get a friend. And I know you're always looking for a girlfriend. So this would be a very cool way for you to meet a girl. <laughs> Michelle with the slam, Classic setup dog. and wow. slam at the same time. But you're not. He's not always looking. He's just um. He. Uh, I was trying to save this here. He's looking. I'm more on the. I, I'd call it more on the prowl. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Michelle, just uh, want to touch on uh, COVID and how it's maybe affected uh, the other parts of your operations because clearly in the summertime, uh, getting these houses built uh, quickly requires people getting really close to one another, lots of people on site. Did you have to cancel or postpone any of your builds this summer? You know what? This past summer, we were lucky enough to be able to safe, uh, safely host people. Our safety team and our volunteer coordinators really spent a lot of time making sure that we were to do it. So we were able to host the companies that were able to come out and volunteer. Everybody had to wear a mask, which was actually okay. Um, and then if you were, you know, everybody had their own tools, everything. And we're hopeful that that will be the case this year. So we're excited about all the Manitobans that have been, you know, following the rules and everything. And I think that that's going to allow many organizations to get back to work and do the work that they need. So, so we did, we were actually better than, than we'd hoped. And, and we're hoping that we'll host as many volunteers as we can safely this year. The beauty that we have is that we're building on Templeton, which is a large footprint of a site, which allows us to have people social distance. So I know Loren's been out building before on a very tight site. We don't have those this year, which were, uh, the timing couldn't have been better to have a build site <laughs> like that. that. That was my problem all these years. That's why I didn't get good yeah. on the build sites because the, the sites were too small, guys. But now, yeah. I mean, <laughs> just there wasn't see enough me. room for movement. Right. So you should just see me just I'm really I'm, I'm going to be like the site boss or whatever you call it by the end of the day. Herb, watch should, out. I'm I think we should have job. the morning show out. You can do your show right from the build site and then we'll have you swinging hammers, learning how to use a saw, whatever it is. You know, and Brett, girls like people that are handy. <laughs> I, I know. It's one of the reasons why I'm single because I'm not handy. So <laughs> Well, you know what they say. If they don't find you handy, handsome, at least they can find you handy. <laughs> CNOY.org. You can find Habitat for Humanity Manitoba there and sign up to start your team for the coldest night of the year virtual event on February 20th. Michelle, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Michelle Pereira with Habitat for Humanity joining us live on 680 CJOB. And uh, I think I actually have a fridge magnet that says uh, more handsome than handy. So <laughs> really got you pegged. <laughs> really got you pegged. Here. Speak the truth, brother. Speak the truth. <laughs> Hi, 
We start this half hour with how we've been sharing with you this morning the story of a manager who told an employee he would not accept her request to scale back her workload by 20%. Yeah, that request came from a Saskatoon employee at Siemens, uh, which is a software company. And she had said to her boss that she was struggling to balance her workload with her family needs during this pandemic. And so she proposed to her manager that she reduce her workload to about 80% and with it reduce her pay. His answer was actually no. And it wasn't because he didn't want to pay her less or didn't want to have her cut back her work, but because in his words, quote, Women in the workplace have been disproportionately affected by COVID, erasing decades of gains. And it's easy to see why when women typically earn less, even for the same jobs, than their partners. So they came up with a solution that's allowing her to block out times where she can just focus on her family. Are other workplaces willing to make these changes? Barbara Bowes is the lead HR consultant with Legacy Bowes and joins us now. Good morning, Barb. Hey, good morning with frozen toes. Were you doing a walk today? How far did you, how, why, why are your toes so frozen? Oh, from my house to the car. <laughs> it happened. Okay, sensible shoes or, uh, we, we can talk about that another time. Always great to catch up with you, Barb. So they've come up with this, um, this solution in this particular workplace, but is COVID disproportionately impacting women? Yeah, the answer to that is absolutely yes. There's a lot of research out here recently that um, it is severely impacting women. And, you know, the first thing really we have to realize is that most of the job losses at the start of the pandemic were women's jobs because they work in the most affected areas by public health measures like retail and hospitality and restaurant stuff. So they've been hit really hard. And then secondly, whether people agree with it or not, women still take on that traditional role of the lion's share of responsibility for kids and their education in the home. So if they may be, that other group of women is uh, working at home remotely, but they also now have responsibility for the kids. So I really personally, even to be honest with you, didn't realize how hard that was until I spoke to, because uh, my kids are all grown up and my grandkids are grown up, but I spoke to somebody who was looking after their kids during that two-week period, and here they're trying to work where at the same time there's a 60-page document from this school asking them, you know, literature, science, etc. So I'm trying to talk to her, get some work done, and she's building a volcano for the kids and making plasticine for the kids. like that extent of having to do actual hands-on homework and work, uh, it kind of struck me that really we have um, underestimated the pressure that was put on parents by having kids working at home. And, and we appreciate why that's happening, but where does it fall? It falls on mom, um, and mom's also trying to work. What are you hearing from employers when it comes to the struggle that staff might have to find that balance with job and home? Well, I think that the first time COVID, we did a shutdown and we scrambled in order to go and do the remote. It was a bit of a shock and a slap in the face, if you want, to employers to have the workers at home and having to accommodate for someone who felt fearful about working because of COVID. But this time around, I think it's gone a lot more smoothly. Um, I think there's a deeper appreciation for the value of employees, and so there's a lot more flexibility. And, you know, flex time, as, as uh, you had mentioned in your query, 
I mean, it's been around for a long time, but it was seen as a privilege. Now it's just seen as a new way to do the work. And so you're starting to see flex time in terms of you have to go uh, pick your kids and drive them over here over lunch. Go ahead. Uh, if you come back, uh, even they're, they're, they're not even asking for replacement of time as aggressively as, as prior to COVID. So, but I think the biggest thing really is the appreciation and value of the employees and what they do do. Um, I've seen uh, reduction of workload and, and surprisingly enough in reducing the workload. It's like, oh, gosh, you know, we, maybe we don't even need to do that at all. So when people come back to the office or the actual work site, they might see their jobs change quite a bit as well. A um, couple cases, I see my clients offering shorter work hours, four-day weeks, and they're even willing to look at continuing remote work. So the appreciation, I think, that's come out of this for employees is leading to a more flexible perception of how work can be done and more respect for women um, and their workload. You know, and I understand that the situation is going to be different for everyone, Barbara. What I experience versus what my neighbor experiences versus another friend, it's all going to change. And we have listener Mike texting in to say, hey, homeschooling sucks for us too, I'm just saying. And so <laughs> I get that there are, there are men out there that are also doing work. But we're talking about research and surveys that have been done over the past 10 months about the hours people are putting in that have that have shown that there still seems to be a, a larger increase or more of the work coming on to the women. And again, not all, but... But that seems to be what surveys and research are telling us. And so I'm curious, what are employers saying back? Because is, you mentioned the idea that this is happening now, but the long-term impacts of this might be that we just really readjust how we work, period. You know, what, is there a situation where someone could return to the office and still have the opportunity to zip out to pick up the kids more than they would have maybe in years past? Yeah, I, I do believe that that's going to be the new trend. And that, to me, comes from the respect that they've gained, employers have gained from what employees are doing. And the other thing is, is workers, uh, employees are essential workers. What does that mean? You can't do your business without them. And so the need to provide flexibility in order for job satisfaction, productivity, work-life balance, and all of those kinds of things, I think are being, going to be given much more credibility and respect than ever before. Are you saying that employers are ultimately respecting and appreciating their employees more than ever? I think so. I really do. Well, that's that's good news for all of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, even though COVID has been really hard, that to me is one of the prime learnings that we have gained from this. Two, two things. One, we can work differently. Yeah. Work can be restructured. We can re- work remotely. And you know what? Those employees are really valuable to my success. And maybe I can um, take a look at alternatives and options more seriously than I've ever done before. Well, here's another question with this Saskatoon case where this employer has come up with a solution to allow uh, this woman to block out times where she can just focus on her family. I'm curious, is that sort of creating a dangerous precedent? Because what if one of her coworkers who does not have kids or does not have a family says, well, hold on a second. What about me? What what are you going what slack are you going to cut me? Well, it is kind of interesting because when this whole concept of flex time came out a number of years ago, 
uh, one of the big complaints was single employees without children who did not feel that they were being treated equal. I really think, though, in today's environment that managers, owners, etc., will look more seriously at all the employees and their flexibility needs. Um, because if you turn around and do give uh, a woman uh, more flex time and you um, deny it for anyone else for any reason, it could be perceived as discrimination. And we're much more cognizant of those issues today as well. You know, it's it's interesting. Do you think, before we let you go here, Barb, uh, my wife has been doing some flex time at home. Mostly she's been at work, but the at the first round of, of closures and, and code red, she was at home quite a bit. And I found like she would do a lot of work on the weekend and the evenings. And so when you have a good employee, do you find, or is it your experience, that people will inherently they they will actually in fact maybe even give you more they they might find a couple hours in the evening or a couple hours on a on a sunday to to make sure that that they're doing good work when they're in a situation where they're feeling respected like that yeah and and you're absolutely true the research is also showing that productivity is higher and that people are working longer hours because they're flex timing working after supper for an hour or two because they had time Um, during the day for their kids or even the the, uh, elderly parents um, as well. So, yeah, there's lots of studies to support that as well. So, you know, all in all, I think that this flexibility is good for everybody. And if you can meet the needs of both the employer and the employee as best you can, um, there will be lots of job satisfaction. And the research shows um, increased in productivity. You've got to be careful, though, that um, you don't have your employees working 80 hours a week because they'll burn out, and maybe it, that's a signal for you that you need another, another person or you need to reduce some of those responsibilities of that individual. Barbara Bowes, lead HR consultant with Legacy Bowes, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Barbara, pleasure as always. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, we have time to read one text message from Andrea. It's a great story. Andrea is our winner of the Santa Lucia $20 gift card on worst hotel room ever. Andrea says, the worst hotel ever? Well, we didn't even end up staying. This is how bad it was. Yeah, Wisconsin Dell's Econo Lodge, which no longer exists. Thank goodness for that. My husband and I had planned a trip to the Dell's years ago, booked a hotel through a booking site, and it looked decent. We drove a 10-hour day to get to the Dells in the July heat and arrived early evening hungry and tired. Well, we go to check-in only to find out they have no room for us. They had a reservation. They took the reservation. They didn't know how to hold the reservation. So they checked in, they paid, and then the guy at the desk tells us, sorry, we have no rooms for you as the room we have available We have a staff member sleeping in it. So they were going to wake him, clean the room, and call us to come back. So we went out to eat. Andrea goes on to say they came back about an hour later, got told the room was not available, that they wouldn't get their money back until the next day. So at this point, they're livid. The husband says, I'm calling the cops. Turns out the cops were actually at the hotel for another reason. So he goes over to talk to an officer while witnessing a woman crawling out of her hotel room window. She got locked in her room when the doorknob broke. Another family was leaving the pool because their kids are sick. Goes on to say that uh, lots of complaints were coming from people all over the place, Brett. 
And long story short, the officer was kind enough and offered us a room that the county had held for the intoxicated party crowd. (laughs) It was $250 a night for us to take it. And at that point, it was the only thing available. We only would up staying a couple of days at the cost of the hotel. It sucked up our vacation budget. It was such a nightmare experience for us. We checked up randomly on that hotel one day, and it had been demolished, and a Holiday Inn had taken its place. And yes, we did end up getting our money back the next day. When the manager arrived, we were not happy about the whole experience, but we're happy at least we got our deposit and fees back. Andrea, great story. Congratulations. We will be in touch. Gary and McNabb, it's time for another edition of Manitoba Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, a couple months ago, um, we were talking to the Manitoba Association of Chiefs of Police, Greg. They launched a feature on their website called Unsolved Mystery Fridays, and they're now working with crime stoppers to spread the message. Yeah, we've got two mysteries to share today, both involving victims from the 1980s, both named Margaret. Detective Sergeant Tom Mackay, police coordinator for Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, joins us now. Good morning, Detective Sergeant. How are you this morning? Good morning. I'm fine, thanks. Well, we appreciate you uh, bringing these stories to our attention. These features are uh, obviously uh, difficult to share, but it's imperative we do so. So for today, let's start October 28th. It was a Friday in 1983. And is it Margaret Greaves that we're talking about? That's correct, actually. Yeah, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, so, yeah, today we're talking about two murders. That, while they're unrelated, they do have some similarities beyond the fact that the uh, victim's first name shared that of Margaret. <clears throat> As you said already, the uh, first homicide took place in 1983. Uh, our victim in this case was Margaret Grease, who was 29 years old at the time. Uh, Ms. Greaves had a seemingly ordinary life. Nothing about her lifestyle suggested a motive for the crime. Uh, from what police were able to piece together, it looks like she was killed in the early morning hours of October 27th, and Ms. Grease had either opened the door for her killer or it was left unlocked as there was no sign of forced entry. Uh, additionally, there was no signs of a struggle, no defensive wounds, suggesting that this was a totally surprised and unprepared attack that uh, where she was choked to death, I'm afraid. No sexual assault took place. It didn't appear that anything had been taken. So this was able to rule out some of the more common explanations for this type of murder. The investigation did turn up that around 4 in the morning, the building's caretaker recalls buzzing in someone through the front security door, and they believe that this was a white male around 20 years of age with brown hair and may have been using a name of Mark Smith. So, Sergeant Mackay, you talked about there was no forced entry, no sign of a struggle, and you're looking, they were looking potentially for this man who had been let into the building. They also, the backstory leads to some footprints that were found linked to a Lotto Pioneer shoe from Zellers. And I'm going to guess that maybe now there might be a database for that sort of thing or a place that you could turn to to help access information. But when you found shoe prints or when they found shoe prints in the 80s, what was involved in matching a footprint to a specific kind of shoe? Well, they would still take the impression of uh, of the shoe, of course. Uh, not much has changed with that respect. Unfortunately, though, it's not the same as like the bad guy leaving a blood sample behind, right? This was the victim's blood that we're talking about. So it's not so much a, a question of DNA matching. Um, ideally, it would be something where you find a suspect, 
uh, you know, obtain a search warrant and uh, go through his belongings, finding a shoe that you believe would be similar to the one found at the scene, and then hoping to do a match that way. So, um, I mean, like going back this far in time, it's going to be definitely a challenge to uh, to be able to link something like that. But you never really give up hope, and uh, you never know what somebody might still have. And then when it comes to the actual footprint, like determining that, okay, so we've taken an impression of this particular footprint and then figuring out what kind of shoe it came from, like, is that just a trial and error where you got to go to a store and look at, at the bottom of all the shoes or how would, how would that work? It can be pretty exhaustive, actually. Yeah, uh, especially back then. I'm not sure what they're doing nowadays, but um, yeah, definitely back then it was just be, like you say, kind of trial and error going and seeing what all the available shoe patterns are. Uh, you know, that you think that would even be close, and then basically you're matching up from there. But, I mean, they have labs, crime labs that do this sort of thing for a living and do it day in, day out, so they're they're very good. Uh, in this particular case with Miss Grease, it's believed that, uh, as you guys already said, that it was a Lotto Pioneer uh, sneaker, and it's believed to be a size 9 or size 10 men's shoe, or possibly a 10 or 11 in women's. So can we move now uh, to Sunday, June 4th, 1989? Margaret Unger was the victim here. What happened in her, her case? Well, yeah, this next homicide took place, you know, about six years later uh, to Margaret Unger. Uh, Mrs. Unger, actually, like Ms. Grease, was living alone at the time. And I guess family and friends know, were able to report that she was known to follow a very certain routine in the mornings. Uh, which led police to looking at a possible time window of the murder between 7 and 8 a.m. on June the 4th, uh, 1989. Uh, another similarity to Ms. Grease's murder was that it appears that Mrs. Unger either knew her attacker or the attacker was able to talk his or her way into Mrs. Unger's home, as once again there was no signs of forced entry or that of a struggle. Uh, in fact, it looks like Mrs. Unger was comfortable enough at some point to turn her back on her attacker, at which time it looks like she was shot once in the back of the head. And uh, just like Ms. Grease, there was no obvious motive for this killing. So I know often in these cases, whether it's the 80s, 70s, or now, um, people often turn to the person you mentioned, someone who might know them. And so it was her ex-husband who who had dropped her off and found the door ajar and all the rest and the uh, things in the driveway. Was he a suspect? Who were suspects at the time? <clears throat> well, no, I don't believe he was. Um, I, I think the uh, the time chain that took place, uh, you know, where they knew she was last seen and so forth, I think ruled out uh, her estranged husband there from being a suspect. Um, he was the one that found her the following morning along with another family member. They had, uh, I think, had a a fine relationship, uh, even in separation amongst themselves, and uh, I believe they were coming over to help move a piece of furniture, in fact, uh, which is what led them to discovering Mrs. Unger's body that morning. What I also understand, too, she was extra conscious of her home security, right, because she had been the victim of, of two burglaries and still no sign of forced entry, and as you said, it, 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 was, it would appear that she was comfortable with whomever was in her home. Yeah, and that's where the mystery lies, right, is you would think somebody who is as self-conscious about uh, personal security and that, you know, would be obviously very careful as to who they let in. So that's why I say whoever it was, either they, they knew Mrs. Unger or, you know, had a very good line to talk themselves into her house without her being alarmed. 
Detective Sergeant Tom Mackay, police coordinator for Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, joining us. And Detective Sergeant, I, I know we sort of ask this question every time you come on, but I think it's important that we reiterate this thing. Like with, with older cases like this, do people ever hold off on call, calling in a potential tip because they might think, boy, how, how could it possibly help an investigation that's over 30 years old? Uh, like, is it possible people are scared to waste anyone's time with what they think they might be remembering around something like this? Well, you know, it can be sometimes hard to gauge, you know, or pinpoint what somebody's motivation might be. Um, I can tell you that, you know, in our line of the business here in Crime Stoppers, it's not that unusual for somebody to come forward after a period of time. Uh, a lot of times, you know, if it's a web tip, for example, uh, somebody might precede their information by saying just what you were talking about of, you know, I, I don't know if this is important. I don't know if I'm wasting your time. And, you know, a lot of times it's just adding that piece of the puzzle, something that you think that everybody might know or might be common knowledge uh, still might be missing from an investigation. And it, it really might kind of tip police into the right, right way of uh, looking at things. They say time heals wounds. That's one of those cliche sayings that gets thrown out, um, especially in times of tragedy. I'm just curious for families. I'm going to guess that's not the case. These years can pass, but they're still looking for those answers. You know, you're right. I think time heals all wounds, maybe when it comes to a broken heart, you know, from a failed relationship or something like that. But when it comes to the loss of a loved one's life, um, especially when it's just hanging in the air as to who did this and did they really get away with it, uh, I know personally that would affect me uh, deeply probably for the rest of my life. Well, if you want to call Crime Stoppers, if you ever have a tip, the phone number is 204-786-TIPS. That's 204-786-8477. Or long-distance callers, dial 1-800-222-8477. The website is winnipegcrimestoppers.org. And if you want to read more, Manitoba Unsolved Mysteries, macp.mb.ca. Detective Sergeant Tom Mackay, Police Coordinator for Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, joining us live on CJO be detective sergeant thank you for the time once again thank you for having me hey thanks for listening to the start podcast we are available on apple podcast google podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts subscribe now and never miss an episode and if you like what you hear rate the show tell us what you think And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.